0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Long. Dr. Long is Professor of Religion and Asian Studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. He is associated with the Vedanta Society, Dhanam, the Dharma Academy of North America. He was trained at the University of Chicago, and one of the major themes of his work is in religious pluralism, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Dr. Long has authored three books: A Vision for Hinduism, Beyond Hindu Nationalism, Jainism an Introduction, and the Historical Dictionary of Hinduism. He has published and presented a number of articles and papers in various forums, including the Association for Asian Studies, the Society for Asian and Comparative Philosophy, and the American Academy of Religion. He is also about to go on sabbatical and has is planning on working on three book projects: one on Indian philosophy that bridges the classical and the contemporary another book on Hinduism in America, and a third one on Swami Vivekananda and his teachings. So hello, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, and good day. (laughs) So it's really nice to chat with you. I've had a, a, I've really enjoyed reading uh, in preparation for this interview, reading a bunch of your um, articles and an interview that was, was posted or published on Sutra Journal. So I would love to hear, you know, just to start a little bit about your own story and what has led you to the study and the practices of uh, the Hindu traditions.
1: Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, I um, started off on this journey in my childhood, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I grew up uh, Catholic in a small town in Missouri, and so most people, when they hear that, they say, oh my goodness, how did you end up in the Vedanta Society? Right. <laughs> but it's, a, it's an interesting story, I think. Um, people seem to find it interesting. My uh, um, father was in a Very bad accident when I was young. Mm -hmm. Uh, It um, ended up – it resulted in his death ultimately. There was a period of about a year and a half when he was – he was quadriplegic in fact and uh, had – just a really major struggle, and uh, after he passed away, uh, of course, all of these events—his uh, accident, his his struggles during that year and a half, then his death—all uh, this left a huge mark on me. I mean, I was uh, just about to turn eleven when he was injured. I was twelve when he died, and so that's an impressionable age. Yeah. And uh, I I was already interested in religion and spirituality. I was, uh, um, I think, I really had. Two sets of influences growing up, uh, which I I think this is true of many Americans. You have Christianity on the one hand, but also the worldview of modern science uh, on the other. And uh, I, um, I was interested in science from an early age, and that really was sparked by science fiction. Um, I was a big Star Trek fan growing up. uh, Saw Star Wars when it first came out. Excited about the new Star Wars movie coming out now. Uh, So. Uh, I was uh, was growing up Catholic. I was, I would say, fairly religious, but I was also pretty open-minded. I was uh, not uh, obstructed by my family from theorizing and having my own ideas about the universe and how things worked, basically trying to put together uh, what I thought made the most sense from both the scientific and and, uh, Catholic worldviews. And after my father passed away, the issue that really became became all-consuming for me was the afterlife. And basically, well, to make a long story short, uh, I came to the conclusion that the idea of rebirth made much more sense than either the traditional Christian model of heaven and hell or the idea that you just die and that's it, uh, the more materialist concept. Uh, I became convinced during the period of my father's sufferings that we really are not this physical body. The body is an essential instrument for our uh, experiencing and living in the material world. But my, uh, I became quite strongly convinced that my father was not that injured piece of of meat that his body had become. He, uh, before he was injured, he was a musician, uh, he was a carpenter, he had all kinds of talents, and there was such a powerful spirit uh, in him. That I, my sense was that the body had become a prison for him, mm-hmm. and uh, when he passed away, I mean, we we all mourned very deeply, but uh, at the same time, there was this sense of liberation that he had become free from something, and so uh, I, I, basically had sort of concocted my own uh, theory of rebirth. And then around that same time, around the age of 12, 13, I was listening to a lot of George Harrison and the Beatles. Uh, My dad was a fan, and uh, this was back in the days of uh, cassette tapes. He had me put all his records on cassette because... He had a device that he could uh, he could control with his mouth, and he could play cassettes, but he couldn't play records uh, with that. So I put all so I had all these great Beatles cassettes uh, that I was listening to, and uh, then I started you know getting you know, more George Harrison's records and in his lyrics and in his uh, album art, the cover art, and so on. Uh, I was really intrigued by the Indian connections that were there. Uh, just it, it it pulled me. I would say. And, uh, then the movie Gandhi came out when I was 13. I saw that I was enthralled by Gandhi and the idea that someone could oppose evil in a peaceful, nonviolent way, you know, not with phasers or lightsabers, but <laughs> with the power of truth. And so this all really had me fascinated when I was, uh, when I was young. And then I had this, this epiphany, uh, and it's funny, it was in the parking lot of, the. Uh, Methodist Church in the small town where I grew up, uh, there was a a flea market going on. And I would go to these flea markets with my grandmother, and I would find uh, old sci-fi novels and comic books and that sort of thing. So I went over to this table that looked really promising. There were magazines and books piled there. And right on top was the Bhagavad Gita, which I'd seen mentioned in uh, some of the stuff I'd been reading on Gandhi. And there it was. I opened it, and uh, it just what I saw in it made perfect sense to me. And it it fit very well with the direction my mind was already headed in terms of ideas like rebirth, talked about how when we die, it's like changing clothes and uh, the soul continues on. And uh, I just uh, became really absorbed in that. And I began reading everything I could uh, and really, about many religions, uh, another topic that came up for me in my childhood. I guess I had a pretty interesting childhood. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, I was having all of these ideas and theories based on my own reflections and on these books I was reading and listening to George Harrison. But uh, the area I was in was pretty conservative, religiously speaking. I mean, Missouri still is. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I would have run-ins with. Uh, basically the family members of some of my good friends uh, who would say, oh, you're you're going to go to hell if you think that way, and, and so on. And uh, so, uh, you know, there was this idea that unless you follow a particular brand of Christianity, your soul is lost for all eternity. And to me, that made no sense, uh, coming from the same religion that teaches that God is love and that you know, God loves us so much that God would even come to earth and die for us and so on. And yet, well, if you follow a different religion, no, you're going to hell. And that made no sense to me at all. And then I was reading, uh, people like Gandhi and Ramakrishna saying things like religions are all paths to the same goal. Uh, People call water by different names, but it's the same water. And that just made so much more sense. It seemed more scientific. It seemed more rational that if there is such a thing as God, if there is such a thing as the soul, people from different cultures are going to encounter that and describe it in the way that is appropriate to their Understanding. And mm-hmm. so um, that's the, the religious pluralism dimension of, of, uh, of, of Hinduism, really, that, that attracted me especially. Because to, to speed up the story a little bit, um, moving from my childhood on into college and, and graduate school, I went to University of Notre Dame for college, very Catholic university, uh, but a good place to explore spiritual questions. And I realized while I was there that uh, the way I thought had taken me quite far, really, from the mainstream of Christianity. So then I thought, well, who am I? Where do I fit in, in the the scheme of, you know, the world's religions and, and so on. I always felt most drawn to Hinduism in terms of what I believed and in terms of just the appeal of uh, the aesthetic appeal of Hinduism. I love the artwork, the music, everything. Uh, but there was a widespread view at that time. It, it's still present, but I think it's it's now slowly passing. Uh, that to be Hindu basically meant to be born in India or to a Hindu family that you had to be born Hindu. Basically, it was not something you converted to. Um, kind of like Judaism. Though you can, you can convert to Judaism, but it's very rare. Um, and uh, of course, most Hindus don't believe in conversion because of the idea that, well, you know, your religion is what's appropriate for you, and there's no need to to convert or, any, or anything of that kind. But I found that i didn 't really uh, fit anymore uh, within the Catholic community, and I, I did feel a need for some kind of tradition, some kind of grounding. Um, there are a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious, and uh, you know take bits and pieces from many traditions and I did that too, um, but I having grown up Catholic, I did feel there was a, a void uh, there was something missing uh, where you know the experience of church and community had been. And then I encountered uh, Siddha Yoga, uh, Mm -hmm. a tradition brought by uh, Swami Muktananda back in the 70s, and uh, Guru Mai, uh, his successor, was the uh, head of the tradition by that point uh, when I became exposed to it. So I started attending some of their satsangs. This was when I was in college, and uh, I really enjoyed that. I got a great deal out of it. I had some wonderful experiences through that. Uh, Then when I went to graduate school, Uh, I met my wife, and uh, she's uh, one of the small handful of Indians teaching Japanese in the United States. And uh, we met, uh, she was teaching uh, at uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in India at that time, and she came to Chicago where I was doing my graduate work uh, for some summer research. So we met and just immediately felt a recognition. Um, You know, if you believe in past lives, if you believe in rebirth, uh, it makes sense that there's some people that you reassociate with. And it was like resuming a conversation that had been interrupted. So uh, we just immediately bonded. We uh, got married in India, and uh, I became Hindu through the Arya Samaj, which uh, was the—a lot of people uh, like getting Arya Samaj weddings in India. They're a fairly straightforward, pared-down version of the basic Vedic wedding. And uh, so it doesn't take, you know, 10 days. (laughs) You get, you know, in about an hour and a half. And uh, so uh, part of that was— receiving an initiation into uh, the Hindu tradition mm-hmm. and uh, in fact my wife and her father uh, initially uh, precisely on Hindu grounds thought oh no that's not right he shouldn't have to to do that and i said well you know this makes perfect sense to me it's the it's the next logical step in this whole development so i became formally hindu at that time uh, this is now 21 years ago uh, we've been married that long And um, eventually uh, I finished my degree and got my job at Elizabethtown College. My wife got a job here as well, fortunately, so we teach here together in the same place. Uh, We're active in the local Hindu community. And uh, the specific tradition that I've always felt most drawn to uh, within Hinduism was the Ramakrishna tradition, mm-hmm. which was my, my wife's family's affiliation also. So that uh, uh, through that personal association, I've, I've become close to that tradition. Um, we've met a lot of the Swamis at various conferences and events, and eventually took initiation in that tradition uh, with Swami Tyagananda from the Boston uh, Vedanta Society and uh just uh, I found it an incredibly enriching in uh experience and uh uh it's it's been meaningful for me throughout my life. It's helped me frame some of the tragedies that I've experienced both when I was younger and also more recently. I lost my grandmother last year hmm. and I'm so glad I had Vedanta because it just it it everything uh was it was much easier to adapt to the situation. Having a regular meditation practice, uh it just changes everything. Mm. Uh, I I can't say enough good things about it.
0: Yeah. Um
1: So that's my story in a nutshell.
0: That's a really beautiful story. And I love the way you narrate it because it really does kind of highlight that the whole process of inquiry for you has been kind of an adventure in your life that started at a very young age, you know, grounded, grounded in a really profound tragedy, but, but in a way that, you know, that has kind of woven through your life in a really kind of beautiful way. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, And, you know, in your, in your story, you touch on a lot of the themes that I kind of want to dive into. So it's a great introduction. For the rest of our conversation, but first, I want to, um, you know, wh- one thing that struck me was was when you had mentioned being initiated into Hinduism when you were when you were married. It struck me that you know when I was listening to um, uh, the other podcasts or, or a recent podcasts you did with with um, Spirit Matters and, and and Phil Goldberg, you had mentioned you know in that podcast that it, it, Hinduism doesn't isn't institutionalized in the in the way that Catholicism is. So I'm curious when you were initiated. Were you initiated into like a a, a tr- specific tradition that would that falls under the umbrella of Hinduism? I'm curious how that worked.
1: Well, I'll give you a little historical background. So, uh, the Arya Samaj was an institution started in the 1800s uh, by a monk named Swami Dayananda Saraswati, and he was uh, what many would call a Hindu reformer of that period. He wanted to. Uh, um, center Hinduism, he felt it had strayed from the original Vedic revelation, because uh, a lot of a lot of Hindu practice is based on other texts like the Puranas and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, he created this very simple worship based on the original Vedic uh, prescriptions. So you don't have any Murtis, uh, it's just the sacred fire that is the centerpiece and oh, the wow. The Sanskrit verses recited from the Rig Veda uh, are used in, in all of the rituals and all the ceremonies. And uh, their temples uh, and uh, their uh, their wedding ceremonies are very popular in India because it's a way to have a Hindu wedding that is very simple because um, a lot of the Hindu wedding customs uh, are local to various uh, regions of the country. Mm-hmm. And some of them are quite elaborate and yeah. involve many, many days. And, <laughs> and and this is wonderful if you are rooted in that community, but especially for urban people and then especially for people who if you have couples where one member is not uh, Hindu or not born Hindu but they want to embrace that way of life and embrace that practice. One of the things Dayananda Saraswati wanted to do was to allow for... Uh, now, he was originally thinking mainly of Indians whose ancestors had converted to either Christianity or Islam, and so he thought of it as a kind of coming home or reconversion, that these people who's, uh, you know, who wanted to return to their Hindu roots would have an opportunity to do so, because previously that had not been possible. So the initiation ceremony is a, a variation on... On what children are actually given? It's uh, you have the namakarana sanskara that is the giving of a name. Mm-hmm. So I have a Hindu name, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then there is the upanayanam the sacred thread, which uh, usually a young boy is given around the age of twelve or thirteen. Uh, there's there are girls now who receive it too. I know of some girls who've had this uh, ceremony done, and. Um, so that's what I was given, and uh, I was—the certificate, uh, what, what I was given uh, on that day, does not indicate that I was necessarily joining the Arya Samaj. Maybe that's understood or implied, uh, but uh, the, uh, what it says is that you're affiliating to the Vedic or Hindu dharma. Yeah. And, and so uh, it's really uh, the closest thing there is to a kind of generic Hindu uh, conversion ceremony, if you will, because, yeah, it's it's not a tradition that really thinks in terms of converting people. So you don't have baptism or uh, – confirmation or any of those things. But uh, these are the rituals that are done for usually for someone who's born Hindu. Now, I know there's a way of thinking in the Arya Samaj, which I find very interesting. And I know people in the Arya Samaj who will say this, they'll say we're all born Hindu. Uh, Everybody on earth is born Hindu, but then Hmm. they choose to follow different things. So you're just acknowledging, you're you're returning to what was already the case. And uh, that could be a controversial claim, of course, a lot of people will say no. I wasn't born Hindu, but um, well, let's explore.
0: That, let's explore that because I think that your article, actually, that um, where you talk about what is a Hindu, it kind of kind of deepens what what that might mean. Because you know, as as you're sort of touching upon the the, the word Hinduism itself, can be controversial because you know, for uh, some people, consider it a colonialist imposition, and then others think that it doesn't actually um, that it's inappropriate because it doesn't reflect the kind of plurality of different traditions that, uh, you know, that, that are within the Indian, um, subcontinent. So, so, th- but then you write this really interesting article where you're, you're actually saying that this can be a term, this, uh, this term can be reimagined as kind of a, a universal, um, term of, of spiritual and religious pluralism. And, and where, and you, and you say in the article that, 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 that means that there can be Christian Hindus and, and Muslim Hindus and, and Jewish Hindus. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's a really kind of, that's a very unique idea that most people do, haven't really considered.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a variation on Swami Vivekananda's thinking about Vedanta. Uh, now, he did not simply equate Vedanta with Hinduism, and when, when he used the word Hindu, uh, he seems to have been referring really to Indian followers of Vedic traditions. Uh, but uh, the word Hinduism itself, uh, like you just said, uh, I think it can be, uh, reinterpreted uh, in a way that's similar to the way Swami Vivekananda interpreted Vedanta. He saw Vedanta as the spiritual science underlying all religions. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a very interesting article, of uh, a, a lecture that he gave, where he talks about the Vedas. And he says in a way that sounds very traditionally Hindu and very orthodox, he says you know, the Vedas are the highest... Uh, spiritual principles. They're the basis of all religion. and uh, But then he says something quite radical. He says, by the way, when I refer to the Vedas, I don't mean the texts that are called the Vedas. I mean the subtotal of all spiritual truth. Oh wow! He, oh, us- wow. he uses this term, super, super sensuous truth. And in fact, if you look in other traditions like Buddhism, for example, you have similar ideas like the Dharmakaya and Mahayana Buddhism. It's the sum total of all truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the highest form of Buddha that's not really a form. It's, it's truth itself in its purest essence. And so then he says the texts called the Vedas are, uh, um, from his judgment, the probably best representation in textual form of those highest ideals, he says. But those highest ideals have been encountered by people of all traditions and all cultures, and so uh, some of this uh, eternal Veda, as he calls it, is also to be found in science, in the Bible, in the Quran, and you know everywhere. Uh, but he sees it preeminently in the. Uh, in the text called the Vedas and the Upanishads, because, and this is where this is why I would call myself a Hindu, uh, because I agree with him that, uh, whereas a lot of the things that I believe I can see reflected maybe in symbolic form in some of the some of the scriptures of the other traditions, um, it's laid out very very. Uh, fully, I find, in texts like the Upanishads, where, uh, you know, they really get into a lot of detail about Brahman, about the nature of self, and so on. So, uh, you know, that's where I, I, you know, locate myself uh, religiously. I I see the Vedas as having a little, maybe a fuller expression of these things than, than some other texts. But that's not to belittle the other texts. In fact, it's to say that if you think in this fashion, if you see Vedanta or Hinduism or what, whatever term we want to use, if you see there being a kind of perennial philosophy or spiritual science behind all of the world's religions and philosophies, then you can you can look for it in their texts and in their mm-hmm. teachings, and you can find find it illuminated in different ways, and uh, learn things from every one of these traditions. Yeah. So. Even though I see it as being revealed preeminently in the Vedic traditions, uh, there could certainly be things that you could find in the Bible or in the Quran or in uh, modern science that you couldn't find anywhere else. And so, this is where I think there's an imperative for dialogue that we need to study everybody's traditions so we can draw out the wisdom and the truth that's that's in them. Right. And uh, so, um, but in terms of the word Hindu, yeah, this is uh, something that. I mean, as many scholars will point out, it was um, a term brought by outsiders into India and uh, turned into an ism by the British, uh, who said, well, you know, this is the going to be the term for this collection of traditions that we found. Um, And it kind of got imposed. But then something very interesting happened as a result of that. Um, You had uh, many, many people in India who came to see themselves through the lens of that term and who today are very proud to be Hindu and say, yes, we're Hindus and we've always been Hindus. And and, uh, what comes under that umbrella is a great variety. So you have the Shaiva traditions, Vaishnava traditions, the various forms of Vedanta, Tantra, all of these things. And of course, uh, one of the scholarly arguments against the term Hinduism is that, well, it obscures all of that plurality. But I think you can also reinterpret the term. You could sort of turn that on its head and say, well, maybe what we have here is uh, an opportunity to you know, make a virtue of necessity and say, okay, we've got this term Hindu, we've got this concept of a Hindu community, and it does encompass all of this plurality, all of this diversity, uh, maybe it's possible to expand that concept uh, to see uh, a human spiritual tradition with many different iterations. Because the diversity within Hinduism is almost as great as that Within the world's religions. I mean, uh, there are things in Hinduism that are close to uh, Abrahamic monotheism. There are things in Hinduism that are much closer to Buddhism or Taoism. Uh, there are things in Hinduism that are like uh, indigenous nature traditions. So I see Hinduism almost as a microcosm of the world's religions. And if all of these people with all of these diverse views and practices can see themselves as part of one Hindu community, then it doesn't seem that much of a stretch that we as human beings might see ourselves as part of one uh, internally diverse community. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's how I tend to think of it. And it's very idealistic, I know. And, and these terms are put to all kinds of political usages, and I think maybe I've been been misunderstood at different times of, you know, what is it that I'm saying? Uh, you know, am I trying to convert the whole world to Hinduism? Uh <laughs> well, no, nothing like that. Uh, but just uh, – to try to think of a model of a, uh, because what we're, what we're dealing with, uh, what we're having a hard time with, I think as a human species is accommodating the ideas of unity and diversity. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we err too much on the side of unity and we, uh, ignore diversity, or we want to downplay diversity, or even eliminate diversity, and that can become very totalitarian and very fascistic. On the other hand, sometimes we want to affirm diver- diversity at the expense of our shared humanity, right. and uh, to the you know to the point where people believe where that it's just sim- it's simply impossible to communicate with another human being who's different from ourselves, and then that leads also to conflict, and so. Uh, trying to somehow square this circle, trying to bring together these ideas of unity and diversity, I think that Hinduism, for whatever flaws people may be able to find with it, uh, has in some ways achieved this. And maybe it was due to an outside imposition, but it has now become something that Hindus embrace. Uh, yes, we're Hindus. You know, we're proud to be Hindus, and Hinduism is very internally diverse, and that's one of its great virtues. And uh, so thinking that way... It seems like uh, a good model for for humanity. And who knows? I mean, maybe it will require an outside in position for uh, all human beings to achieve this. Maybe it'll be something like the climate crisis that makes us Get together, or maybe we'll be invaded by extraterrestrials, or you know, uh, who knows? I mean, <laughs> One <sometimes> can hope. <laughs> I would wish for that, you know, because I mean, maybe that would put a stop to all of this conflict that we're having amongst ourselves. You know, we bond together, but uh, but I think that's what happened to the Hindus. I mean, the, that that uh, it was a very internally diverse civilization. Uh, people thought in terms of these separate, distinct. Uh, Hindu traditions. They didn't even use the word Hindu all that much. Um, but then through repeated invasions and uh, sort of the forging of the concept of a of a nation state uh, through the independence struggle, uh, you do get the idea of a Hindu identity. Now, a lot of people find this line of thinking uncomfortable because a lot of this talk of Hindu identity is used in the same way that people use other identities, you know, white identity or uh, Islamic identity and it becomes a kind of uh, a rallying cry for you know aggression against other groups. Uh, but I I want to take it in a different direction and say that you know this is an identity that has so much difference within it that uh, it could conceivably be a, a model or a metaphor for human difference and and human identity and difference
0: together. So. This is how this is how I think of it. That's interesting. So I want to I want to um, talk a little bit about religion because I feel like as we're talking about um, you know uh, a kind of more pluralistic universe of of religious approaches, I feel like this is that's still going to be an obstacle, or we're still going to encounter the obstacle of 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 just the the idea of religion in general and how it has um, become almost synonymous with a kind of conservative sort of backwards approach, and so that leads to this kind of, um, you know, cliche that we hear all the time, spiritual but not religious, which you've actually right. written about. And so... <laughs> Excuse me. So I'm, I'm interested in, uh, because, you know, you talk about in that article that scholars of religion, for example, and, and I would add to those people also practitioners of Eastern traditions like yoga, Vedanta, and, and even Buddhist practic- practitioners are very, uh, you know, um, they, they tend to resist wanting that word religion to be associated with them at all, pr- partly because they often, these same people are often people who would associate themselves with a progressive political outlook in which the word religion just does not fit. So I'm I'm curious how we can reimagine that word. Like what what is a what is a, a, a you know a reinterpretation or reimagining of religion that that becomes allied with progressive with a progressive position?
1: Oh, that's a, a wonderful question. And in fact, I think in many ways it parallels this this Hindu question because in the same way that the word Hindu has been appropriated a lot by more conservative. Uh, people within India uh, in the same way the word religion, like like you've just said, I mean, is really something that uh, people on the more conservative end of the political pr- spectrum tend to embrace and then progressive people see as an obstacle to mm-hmm. uh, you know, humanity flourishing and people getting along and so on. And I think as with Hinduism, if we're going to use the term religion, now that's a big if, and we can return to that question. If we're going to use the term religion, we certainly have to reimagine it. We have to see religion as... Uh, a more flexible and more encompassing reality than, than what we've tended to do. Because uh, I think one of the reasons people who practice uh, a lot of the Asian traditions resist the word religion is precisely what you're saying. Uh, it's seen as anti-progressive, and it's also seen as very tied to Christianity, which yeah. it really is. And this is something scholars of religion have struggled with over the years, that so many of the categories we use, like scripture, for example, um, community, uh, theism, these are all rooted in Christianity. And so uh, using the word religion to try to interpret traditions like, say, Confucianism, which is, you know, utterly different type of practice, uh, that uh, to use that is is distorting. And I I think a lot of this uh, is tied to language, that Uh, we very often uh, assume that there's a one-to-one correspondence between words in one language and words in another. But it's actually very rarely the case that uh, uh, even languages that are very closely related to each other, like French and English, there are nuances that just cannot be captured in a translation sometimes. And if you're working with a language like Sanskrit, uh, for example, uh, you'll find that there are many, many terms that it's better to just uh, you know, incorporate into English, right? Uh, dharma, uh, how do we translate dharma? It's got about 20 different meanings, and several of them may be operating at a given time. Mm-hmm. So if we just translate it as duty, or just translate it as religion, or just translate it as truth, or as justice, you lose all the other meanings. And so I, I think religion is a, a, a word that is similarly uh Difficult to translate into different cultures. and so, if we're going to use the term, we have to be very open to modulating and broadening and expanding what we mean by religion. Now, of course, the question uh, remains do do we even need to do that? What if we just jettison the term religion altogether? Um, I I'm of two minds about that. I, I, on the one hand, I sometimes think it would be better to just not even use the term, because it just just hearing the word raises hackles. Sometimes, you know, people get agitated. Oh, this isn't a religion, or why are you talking about religion? And uh, so, uh, for example, in the course that I teach on Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, and Sikh traditions, uh, I've called that I, I now call that course Dharma traditions. And in the class, one of the first things I tell the students, because of course there's always some confusion. Why is it called the? Why isn't it called Indian religions? You know, is to say, well, you know, the term dharma does not really quite match up with religion. In some ways, it does; in some ways, it doesn't. Now, I guess on the other hand, the the, the part of me that still wants to uh, find some utility in the term, uh, I have a, a worry. I think that there are dimensions of these traditions that, frankly speaking. Are religious uh, in in the in a very traditional sense. There's a dimension of faith. There's a dimension of uh, sur- of a kind of surrender to. Uh, a higher reality that is beyond the material. And very often, I think, when we set aside the term religion completely, uh, we deceive ourselves into thinking that's not the case. So, for example, uh, now this might be a little controversial to say, but uh, you know there are interpretations of Buddhism in the Western world today which are really just... Uh, kind of a secular humanism with a little bit of meditation practice incorporated. I mean, Mm -hmm. it has become completely unmoored from Buddhist spiritual teaching because uh, in the effort to, uh, you know, divest it of things that are unpalatable to the modern Western mind, uh, a lot has gone by the wayside that is really integral to Buddhism as it's been practiced in Asia. Now, of course, a response to that, you know comment of mine might be well that's that's fine, you know that the Buddha was fine with people you know adopting whatever uh, was appropriate to them uh from his teaching, and maybe it's you know some of those things just aren't appropriate to westerners, and that's fine, but I think we do develop a uh i I think we do ourselves a disservice if we have sort of collective amnesia about how rooted many of these things are in. Really, very religious kinds of uh, orientations and, and ways of, of practicing in the world. I think there's another dimension of the word religion, too, that makes it useful. And uh, the monks who run uh, the journal Hinduism Today um, have spoken about this uh, on a couple of occasions, in which I've, I've had the occasion to, to, to hear them talk about it. That in America today, in terms of our uh, legal setup, the term used is religion, right? the The First Amendment doesn't guarantee freedom of Dharma uh, or freedom. <laughs> of it guarantees freedom of religion, and so if you want to, uh, if if communities want to avail themselves of certain freedoms and certain privileges under the Constitution, then that's the lingo that we have to adapt to, and. Um, I think that even while the term religion has been very oppressive in some contexts, I think in others it's been liberating. And in one of, the, one of them, I think, does relate specifically to Hinduism. I, I gave a talk in India last year uh, or earlier this year uh, on the Hindu-American Foundation. And uh, a lot of its advocacy for Hindus and for Hindu causes um, makes perfect sense in an American context where they're operating because here in America, what do we do? We form interest groups. We uh, advocate for ourselves through Congress and through the media uh, so that we you know, draw positive attention to our communities and, and address uh, stereotypes and that sort of thing. And when people in India read about or hear about Hindu American Foundation, they think it's a very conservative thing because in India, when you talk about Hindus and Hindu identity, you're talking about the majority community. And it has a completely different resonance then. And, uh, one of the things I pointed out in my paper was that the idea of religion in America is very different from the idea of community in India. Mm. In India, you're born to a community. It's almost like an ethnicity. And so if you say you're advocating for Hindus, it's, it has the same resonance that saying that you're advocating for white people in America, right? it just <laughs> sends down people's spines, right? Yeah. But religion, uh, as it's, as it's come to be defined in America is a voluntary association. It's uh, matter of choice. It's a matter of your personal worldview. And that has a completely different uh, than uh, resonance, because if you say you're advocating for Hindus in America, what you're basically saying is, you know, I agree with this particular worldview and way of thinking, and I want to advocate and advance it, much as someone would advance uh, either anything from a political cause to uh, a charity or, you know, whatever it is that we want to bring into the public uh, consciousness. So it's quite different from uh, this almost racial understanding of a community. So in that way, I think the term religion can be very useful because it basically means, well, this is what I think. And of course, it's a very Protestant uh, understanding historically, very Protestant Christian uh, understanding. But I think that that can be retained, I think, with some utility. Uh, but yeah, it's a huge issue. I, I always have to uh, remind people, or, or you know, when I want people to know where I'm coming from, that when I talk about religion and being religious, I don't mean necessarily this very conservative phenomenon. That, yeah,
0: it seems like it. It always requires some kind of disclaimer. Um, so now I want to I want to talk about the one of another obstacle to this you know new experience or new approach to religion which is materialism or I would maybe say scientism that seems to actually be kind of in, in a certain kind of way the religion of our times um, yes. so I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and, and how you see that as 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 being an obstacle to this uh, experience of religion sure sure and uh, i guess the first thing i
1: would say about it is uh, in terms of uh, a sympathetic view is that you know a lot of this scientism has arisen as a reaction right. uh, you know rightly so against, uh, the, the excesses of religion. So while we were just talking about religion on the one hand, uh, to the extent that it is this very conservative force that, uh, does not allow for free thought, uh, that does not allow for experimentation and and free inquiry, um, then it becomes, you know, superstition. And, uh, you need, uh, science and maybe even scientism, to some extent, uh, as an antidote against that. Right. Uh, on the other hand, the antidote can uh, can become a poison of its own if it's not uh, kept in balance, I feel, uh, that uh, there is a dogmatic scientism, uh, certainly in some quarters of the academy, Yeah, uh, and this is why a lot of people with, with the kind of outlook that you and I have don't always find the academy to be a comfortable place, because... Right. Anything that looks like religion in the bad sense to those folks is just not acceptable, uh, not allowed. But that's a, that itself is a dogmatism. So uh, I think uh, the, the, my big problem with scientism uh, is the extent to which it itself becomes an unexamined worldview— it becomes a set of assumptions that is simply identified with objective inquiry when it's really not objective at all. It's its own worldview with its own prejudices, its own uh, preconceived notions. And for me where this comes up most uh, obviously is whenever we bring up any topic that might connect with what's sometimes called the paranormal uh, psychic phenomena, or my favorite one is past life memory. It's something that I've become very interested in. And uh, again, of course, we do want to uh, be good scientists, right? If if we're thinking scientifically, we we don't want to uh, fall prey to confirmation bias and uh, just, uh, you know, Accept anything that, that fits with our preconceived worldview. So if we very much want to believe in reincarnation, we you know jump on anything that looks like a proof for that without really looking at it uh, from all the angles that, that we need to. But I find very often that uh, we have the opposite problem uh, as well, that there are people who just will not even look at this material because, well, that can't be. Yeah. that can't happen. You know, They've already accepted the materialist paradigm in which reincarnation cannot occur. Therefore, there's no such thing as past life memory, so I don't even want to look at it. And meanwhile, you've got Jim Tucker uh, at uh, University of Virginia and his predecessor, Ian Stevenson, and they've got like 2,500 of these cases. And if he, even if only one of them would prove to be uh, Inexplicable through the materialist paradigm, that itself would be sufficient to question the materialist paradigm, because you'd be left with this phenomenon: How does this happen? How does this occur? And there's that great expression of William James: It only takes one white crow to prove that not all crows are black. Right. And it takes one uh, one verified case of a child having, you know, memories of another lifetime that they could not possibly have in any other way, to show that the mind
0: and consciousness don't operate in a mechanistic fashion. So, And haven't there actually been—there have been verified cases, correct?
1: Well, it's controversial. In mm. my opinion, there's, there's at least one that I have found very compelling. It's the one that uh, made the NBC Nightly News a couple years ago, uh, a boy named Ryan in Oklahoma, who— has these very detailed memories of uh, the life of uh, really not a very well-known person. There was this Hollywood promoter named uh, Marty Martin, um, and uh, this boy in Oklahoma was not related to him. He had no access to any information about him, and I think what makes it even more compelling, his family were not believers in reincarnation. They were good Southern Baptists, and they thought that idea was the work of the devil, so uh, they weren't prompting him to, you know, talk about past lives or anything, and uh, he has all this detailed information in his mind, and he even corrected the death record of Marty Martin because uh, the death certificate said that he had lived to be 59, but uh, the boy remembered living to be 61 and further investigation proved that Marty Martin was 61 when he died so Whoa, that's, crazy. thats yeah I mean, <laughs> so, so to just look at that and say well no that can't be I, I think is is scientifically irresponsible so uh, I think so, you know uh, a truly scientific attitude is one that is, you know, open-minded and, yes, questions everything, uh, but it also questions the existing paradigm. Yeah, And I think to the extent that, and I think the real culprit here is not so much the scientism of scientists. I think it's it's become widespread it's in a our... cultural phenomenon, yeah. It's a cultural phenomenon, yeah, that, that anything that, that isn't explicable in a sort of mechanistic fashion is dismissed as superstition, as BS, and so on. And yet quantum theory, <laughs> right. you know, is full of these things that you know, show that the universe doesn't operate mechanistically uh, on the on the smallest level. So
0: yeah, uh, so interesting. So we're getting we're sort of getting close to our time. So I want to move on to um, uh, this topic of um, hindutva, which you know is is something that I've been wanting to cover on one of these episodes and, and haven't had an opportunity to yet. And, and and I know you have some thoughts on it. And and so I kind of want to approach it this way. Um, <clears throat> you know, if we're not, I guess in 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 the yoga community, which is the community that you know I'm most familiar with you know either, we either have um the practice kind of anesthetized from and these are generalizations uh, right. anesthetized of 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 the of the hindu kind of iconography or the traditions in general or we have kind of an exotification of um hindu iconography uh, you know maybe in a kind of spiritual materialistic one might say sense um so uh, uh, and and that, and and a lot of these practitioners are n- not in any way um, familiar with kind of the political dynamic of India, and so, and, and so then critic. Uh, I'm thinking of one particular reader of our of our content. He he reached out to me um, after I had written this um, uh, this email about the, uh, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, and he kind of was rejecting the Bhagavad Gita just uh, simply on the grounds of its close association with the Hindutva movement, um, you know, as being wielded as a politically aggressive device. Blah blah blah. Um, so you know, so how do we kind of uh, how do we navigate this space between um, I don't know, the, the potential to kind of exoticize India, but also wanting, wanting to honor um, uh, you know, the problematic kind of political milieu that's there. And if you want to just kind of, I think some of the listeners will probably be new to this dynamic, so if you want to maybe unpack it a little bit. Sure,
1: sure. So um, you'll have, uh, like you say, uh, in the yoga community, there are... Um, People who will uh, incorporate a lot of the Hindu iconography, Hindu terminology, sometimes with great sensitivity and depth of understanding of that, but sometimes not so much, and sometimes to the extent uh, of—I think one of the worst things that I've seen— in this ter- these terms, there was a uh, there was one yoga magazine that had a photo of uh, two young women wearing yoga clothing, wearing tights, and they were standing on an image of Ganesha. And uh, putting your feet on an image of a deity is the about the most disrespectful right. thing you can do. <laughs> so, uh, so serious Hindus look at this, and they don't even have to be affiliated with more conservative form of Hinduism or, or with the Hindutva political movement uh, to be offended by that and to, um, you know... Um, Feel that these people need to be informed or educated that this is not the proper way to to do this. Now, of course, a lot of Americans hear that and think, uh, "Well, what do you mean proper way? Can't we be creative? Can't we do whatever we want?" You know. Yeah, yeah, so you yeah. have that sort of freewheeling uh, attitude of spiritual seekers in the West confronting uh, Hindus who have a particular idea of, "No, this is how it's done." Now. In terms of the Hindutva movement, Hindutva, I would say, is a political movement, really. It's uh, uh, not—it's cast in religious terms, but I wouldn't say it's a religious phenomenon. It's more of a political phenomenon. And you can see it coming into play here because— there could be, you know, not necessarily the case, but it could be the case that uh, someone who's Hindu who also happens to have uh, this uh, Hindutva political affiliation sees this kind of appropriation as an example of a neocolonial attitude. So it's not simply that, oh, these Westerners don't know what they're doing. It's that, no, they very consciously know what they're doing. They're trying to humiliate our gods, and they're trying to put Indians in their place, and they're trying to take what they like from the tradition and you know, uh, disrespect the rest, you know, throw it out, and so on. So uh, there's a, a very strong reaction against that. And as someone who's who didn't grow up in the tradition, uh, who was also a, you know, freewheeling spiritual practitioner, but I've now found a home in the tradition, I, I really kind of see both sides of this. Uh, you know, no one is going to police someone's uh, yoga practice to be sure they're doing it correctly, right? I mean, that's uh, yeah. that's just not... Yeah not going to happen, right? That That's not the world that we live in. On the other hand, I'm sometimes puzzled by the attitude of many of my fellow Westerners. Uh, why don't they want to learn more about how these things are practiced traditionally and where it came from? Maybe there's wisdom in that. Maybe these things evolved a certain way because That's what works well. I mean, this is something Phil Goldberg has pointed out. He says for him, it's not a question of, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, but I once heard him say that it's not a question of is this or that practice more authentic. It's that we can now scan people's brains and we can see what what works and what has an effect of a certain kind. And and that a lot of this traditional wisdom is really that. It's, it's wisdom. And, and uh, sure, one can experiment with it and try different things, but uh, it is the way it is for a reason. It's not just someone being stubborn and conservative and saying, you know, my way or the highway. The issue is complicated by the fact that you do also have people who are stubborn and conservative and say it's my way or the highway. So uh, that makes the conversation then more... Uh, uh, heated, I would say, uh, about that. But uh, yeah, think like the, the case you mentioned was interesting someone objecting to the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, the Bhagavad Gita existed centuries before any of these political movements yeah. did. And while it's true that there have been people in the Hindutva movement who've done things with the Bhagavad Gita, Gandhi also uh, appropriated the Bhagavad Gita. And he had a nonviolent interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita that I find very inspirational. And uh, So uh, I guess this is where uh, maybe a common theme that listeners might hear in in a lot of what I've been saying today, even going back to the use of the term Hindu, is that, you know, we can—we're free to— interpret things and analyze things and bring them into different levels of conversation. Uh, We don't have to simply take everything that's been handed down to us from the past, whether it's the term religion or whether it's the term Hindu, and say, oh, this is good, this is bad. And uh, I think this is very unfortunate because it it feeds into the tribalism that we see on the internet, for example. So, you know, people who use certain words and certain language, that almost kind of identifies you as as part of one, uh, tribe or group within this culture war. And then if you speak of it in another way, then you're part of the other group. And I, I'd, I'd like to be much, I don't want to be restricted by that. I, I think that, uh, our intellectual freedom and our spiritual freedom, uh, really requires us to, uh, to dig dig deeply into mm. things, and uh, not simply dismiss something because, uh, well, you know, somebody I don't like quoted from that, so it must be bad. You yeah, know, right? Uh, I, I just I think that's a very unfortunate kind of superficial attitude. You know, uh, go to the source yourself and and see, and and ideally, you know, learn Sanskrit and you know, discover all this. Because I, I think a lot of the people in the the yoga community who object to, you know, who object to the objections of, of the Hindus, often uh, would would be well served to study the sources themselves more deeply. Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh- yeah, I think I think I think for with the Bhagavad Gita, I totally agree with you because there are there are many ways in which we can read a non-violent and an allegorical meaning into into the text. And I think some people who don't spend much time with it get you know they they see the kind of war context and and they consider themselves pacifists, and so it's like kind of immediately rejected, just right. on the grounds that you know this can never be, you know this just can't ever be entertained as a proper kind of philosophical context. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well I'd just like
1: to add yeah. if I could just a little more about I, I wrote an article about this actually a while back. Even it, even if one is willing to take the violent aspects of the Gita literally, uh one has to understand the violence that is described in, in the literary context of the Mahabharata of which the Gita is a part, is very restricted and contained by the Kshatriya Code of Honor that uh I think when we read the Gita and are um, repulsed by, you know, Arjuna being encouraged to go and fight, we're projecting modern ideas of warfare. There, Arjuna is not being encouraged to go and drop bombs on civilians. He's being encouraged to go and fight with other warriors on a level playing field in battle. Uh, they're all trained. Uh, they, they're they forbidden from attacking non-combatants. They only fight during the daytime and so on. Uh, so there's these these rules of honor. So, um, of course, it didn't always function perfectly in ancient India, but the concept of the Kshatriya Code really does restrict the scope of violence, I think. Right. So if we understand that Arjuna is being encouraged to fight within that very restrictive kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, context, then that, that blunts that uh, concern, I think, uh, quite a bit because he's not being told to go out and fight a modern warfare, which would be, uh, I think, uh, um,
0: Rejected as adharmic from, right, from totally. rejected. Yeah. Uh, That's interesting. That's an interesting observation. Um, so now uh, <clears throat> I want to ask one final question to squeeze it in because I, I'm sort of I was I wanted to ask this earlier and then and then I sort of forgot about it. But I'm interested um, for I guess personal reasons um, because you know you'd mentioned that you had. Uh, initially found Siddha Yoga, um, and I'm, I myself am initiated into uh, a Shaivite tradition, and, and Siddha Yoga is Shaivite, and then you moved to the Ramakrishna order. So I'm sort of curious um, if that was just, you know, wh- what were the reasons that you found kind of that, I don't know, non-dual um, movement more satisfying or appropriate for your own kind of spiritual life than something like Siddha Yoga?
1: Okay, that's a very good question. Um- and uh, it's, it's in some ways a delicate question sure. because I don't want to be taken as uh, criticizing or, or attacking Siddha Yoga because yeah. uh, my, my Siddha Yoga experiences were, were wonderful and I have nothing negative to say about that phase of my life in which I practiced Siddha Yoga. Um, frankly, I found the Guru Bhakti uh, that I encountered in Siddha Yoga uh, to be a bit for me. Uh, a bit over the top uh, it, it's there 's a very very strong emphasis on uh, uh, this very emotional uh, kind of relationship to the guru. Now the guru is very very important centrally important in the ramakrishna tradition as well, and I have a very deep relationship with with my guru. Uh, but I have to say that just this is this is not really rational. It's more, I guess, a question of personal styles. Um, I find the Ramakrishna tradition, the Vivekananda tradition, a little more cerebral, a little more serene. Um, I'm not by nature uh, someone who's very. Emotionally kind of extroverted, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I would say the same thing about Siddha Yoga that I say about Iskon, which is that I have friends in both movements. I've been inspired by both movements. I love both movements and I'm glad they both exist, but that's not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the same thing that when I was growing up Catholic turned me off uh, from some of my. Uh, there were some of my friends who were involved in more Pentecostal and charismatic forms of Christianity. They were very emotionally expressive, and you have a lot of, I would say, Christian bhakti. And you know, there's a lot of crying, and you know, <laughs> I I, uh, I just want to run the other way when I see that. Yeah, I, me too, I, me uh, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I, quiet kind of. I, I, I heard someone someone once joke that uh, the Ramakrishna tradition that we are the Unitarians of Hinduism, and I think that's probably correct. Uh, that uh, that's just what appealed to me More and uh, and worked better for me. And I have to say also that it, uh, I I have some trepidation about saying this on a podcast that's going to go across the airwaves. But I don't know, if if people haven't already decided I'm a very strange person, this will prove. <laughs> but I actually had a meditation experience. That there there was a period when I was feeling just not as close to Siddha Yoga, and I took the question with me into my meditation practice, and I actually saw the face of Ramakrishna. Wow. Wow. Uh, my meditation. And to me, that was, a, I, I wasn't sure what it meant at that time, but in retrospect, I think it was a pointer that, well, th- this is actually where you need to go. Yeah. And of course, uh, and scholars will jump on this if I don't say it. Ramakrishna himself was very much into the kind of spirituality where you're crying and singing and all of those things. But the tradition that has been built up around him is much more, uh, has much more of that kind of non-dual uh, serenity about it, I think, that that, that has appealed to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Thank you for yeah saying that because I, I I that um totally resonates with me as well. In fact, um, my teacher, who's not a part, he w- was once a part of City Yoga, but not not a part anymore. And I would say that's sort of what he has kind of. Um, uh, not taken along with him is that emphasis on the kind of guru devotion in fact he would kind of resist that and see himself more as kind of a servant of the teachings and and yeah. so it is more it does feel more cerebral which works for me too so, so I, I totally get you there. Um, so this has been a really awesome conversation Jeffrey thank you so much for um, sharing your time with us um, I wanted you. to give you an opportunity to share anything about you know projects you're working on I don't know if you do workshops that you might want to um, uh, to give people opportunity to check up, check up on or to look into, um, is there anything you'd like to share? Uh,
1: sure. Yeah. In terms of workshops, I know there is a uh, there's going to be a retreat at the Swami Shivananda Ashram in the Bahamas oh, nice. in May, and uh, that is going to be. I'll just check my calendar. That's the week of May 22nd to 26th. Okay and okay. uh I'm going to be one of the speakers there Phil Goldberg is also going to be one of the speakers there and uh so that's one that's coming. And uh, in terms of my uh, uh, writing, if if people are interested, of course, I have articles on Sutra Journal. Uh, I have a page on something called academia.edu uh, mm-hmm. where it's possible to read and uh, in some cases even download uh, articles uh, on topics like this if people are interested. Uh, and then I've got my book projects coming up. So uh, um, within this coming year, I'm hoping that my Indian philosophy book, my Hinduism in America book and my Swami Vivekananda book will become available to people so uh, do you have any titles for those books yet yes I do the Indian philosophy is a very straightforward just uh, Indian philosophy and introduction nice and uh, same publisher that did my Jainism and introduction uh, so it's a part of a series of introductions uh, the Hinduism in America uh, is the the the, the The main title is Hinduism in America. The subtitle is A Convergence of Worlds. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing I want to emphasize about that is that it is – it's about two phenomena that are usually treated separately, but I think they – they go together very well. Uh, that is, the Indian Hindu community coming into America, but also the Western seekers taking up Hindu or Hindu-inspired spiritual paths. So I'm, I'm treating those as one interconnected phenomenon, uh, which they increasingly are. And then uh, the Swami Vivekananda book, uh, it's uh, it, it, it uh, taps into one of his famous phrases where he says, arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. Uh, so the The title is Arise, Awake, Swami Vivekananda Speaks to the 21st Century. So I want to bring his ideas into conversation with our contemporary issues and uh, situation.
0: Amazing. All right. Excellent. So I will put all of that in the show notes, uh, links to um, the sutrajournalacademia.edu and also that upcoming retreat, which I would love to go to. That sounds amazing. That would be great. Yes. All right. So thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. Speak to you soon. Well, there you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jeffrey Long. If you'd like to read some of his articles, and I do recommend them, they are very interesting and educational. You can find a number of them at sutrajournal.com. And then also Jeffrey had mentioned academia.edu. So if you go to academia.edu and search for Jeffrey, you can find a number of uh, additional articles there. So until next time, friends, bye-bye.